Christmas Inc. by Liam Hogan. Danny always hated this time of year. Robins he could just about put up with despite how silly they'd got come spring. But candy canes, Christmas trees, Santa's smug face complete with a triplet of brightly coloured hose. He sighed as he laid the tattoo gun down. Just the holly berries to ink and he was done. Thank God. The smell of gin permeating her skin was getting to him. He supposed he ought to be grateful. So many people were getting tattoos these days. The business was better than it ever had been. But the lack of thought people put into it. The tattoo on the wind. And of the most banal images, especially come December, he wondered if, when they succumbed to their mawkish sentimentality, they stopped to think what that snowman was going to look like lying on the beach six months from now. Tattoos were for life, not just for Christmas. <laughs> he glanced down at the chain of skulls encircling his arm. Even though the shop's small heater could barely compete with these cold, wintry months, he liked to wear short sleeves to show off the wares. Memento mori. Now there was a proper reason for getting it: skulls, angels of death, black roses with thorns dripping blood, a permanent reminder of your mortality, a piece of eat flesh that would go with you to your grave. Nowadays you didn't need an excuse. As soon as you were old enough, down to the parlour you would go. Sometimes with the parents in town. Where was the rebellion in that? Where was the stigma that set you apart from others even when the artwork was discreetly hidden away? Now it seemed you needed a tattoo to fit in. A tattoo on the wrist or the ankle where it was always on show. And of what? A star, a butterfly, a cursive YOLO. <laughs> Tattoos purely for the sake of getting a tattoo. With age verification a legal requirement, it ought to be a sign of Maturity, a mark of adulthood. If only people didn't ask for such stupid, childish images, <laughs> cartoon things, superhero logos, even Father Christmas himself. He felt like asking, why? Felt like asking, didn't you stop believing in that fat fraud ten years ago? Danny dabbed the last of the blood and ink from the holly and mistletoe wreath, and after the girl had admired it in that handheld mirror, he took a Polaroid for the records before covering the inked area with a gauze held in place by surgical tape. The girl fidgeted as he gave the aftercare instructions he doubted anyone ever listened to anymore, and only when he was done did she finally pull up her knickers, almost <laughs> as if she'd been trying to give him every last opportunity. 
I want to be kissed under the mistletoe, mm -hmm. she told him with a smile when she entered the darkened shop. It might have been funny if it wasn't the third one he'd done that week. <laughs> or between the belly button and the pubis. At least this girl wasn't as fat as the other two. <laughs> or as shaved. It wasn't that shaved reminded him of a freshly plucked chicken. That always did. But the girls who shaved down below thought that was the exposed area was fair game for his arm. He had to warn them of potential light scrubbing, raised, sensitive skin, and the fact that they shouldn't be going anywhere near it with a razor for at least two months. He blamed the footballers. The pop stars and celebrity wannabes as well, but mainly the footballers. Fact was, even he, a tattoo artist heading towards the big 5-0, had less ink on him that the average footballer seemed to collect for getting out of their 20s. He wondered when they found the time. And did they have to get them done in the off-season so the healing skin didn't interfere with their training? Was it Beckham who started it? Each fresh piece of ink captured by the waiting press, scrutinised analyzed for its non-existent meaningful insights and then swiftly copied by his most ardent fans. He looked at his watch as the doorbell tinkled Mistletoe Girl's exit, answering her cheery, festive farewell with a grim nod. Four o'clock. Time to close up shop and maybe not open up again until the new year. Take it. His gaze rested on the open bottle of white wine on the counter, the label unfamiliar, something cheap. The girl must have left it behind. Presumably wine is what you graduate to after an afternoon on with gin. Or was gin yesterday's drink? The distinctive aromatics lingering long after the effects of the alcohol. He'd been aware that she got a bottle with her when she'd entered. She offered it to him, but he ins he'd insisted, no drinking on the premises. She pouted. He remained stony-faced. And then she smiled. Back in second, she said. He'd assumed she'd been downing what was left, wringing the last bit of Dutch courage from the fermented grain. That or handing it to her two mates who'd been lurking outside and who had turned to go as she headed back in. It was still half full. He guessed that she and her friends had only had a quick swig instead. Time was he'd have joined her in the drink even before he started work. If it was a full one, it'd pretty much be empty by the end, and then they'd screw. But he hadn't screwed a customer since... He remembered the tattoos, including the rose he added to her collection, but not her name. She must be getting old. And he hadn't had a drink while working for, for what, five years? He'd had a few complaints, had a nasty visit from the health and safety. But it was better for all of that. Better for him. Better for his customers. 
Even if, along with the plastic gloves, the disposable needles and consent forms, it was all rather sterile. He laughed. Of course it was sterile, though not in the way his tired brain had at first met. He was drawn once again to the wine bottle. No doubt. Nasty stuff. And warm now, too, although warm was a relative term. But it was only half a bottle. Something to get him started whilst he closed up. And after all, it was Christmas Eve. He came to, his tongue thick and furred, his cheek pressed against a hard, cold surface. A floor, a tiled floor. His tiled floor. He was in the shop. The main lights off, just his workstation lamp to see by. He tried to push himself up, but his head howled in protest, his arms sliding from under him, and his forehead clunked back to the tiles. He didn't need to get up yet, did he? Give it some time. He, he slowly opened his eyes again, saw the wine bottle too, too close to focus on, still with a pool of piss-yellow liquid at its overturned base. The demon drink. But he hadn't even finished it. He groaned. It must have been spiked. Probably ketamine. He'd taken that before, recreationally, and the fuzzy hole of his memory and the blurry return to consciousness were all too familiar. But then, wouldn't the girl have been in a similar state. She'd been merry, sure, full of Christmas cheer, but not, not falling over paralytic. Unless, unless she was the one who'd done the spiking. He scrabbled to his feet, lurched over to the door. The sign said closed. It wasn't locked. Groaned again. Turned cash register, which was open, open and empty. He'd been rolled by the mistletoe So much for her merry bloody Christmas. She must have been just waiting, hoping he'd drink her spiked wine, her and the couple of guys that had been hanging around. And like a sucker, like a complete and utter twat, he had. But as the feeling was restored to his body, it wasn't the ransacked till that worried him the most. It was the, it was the tightness on his, on his left side, sore and tender. That and the discarded tattoo gun on the floor. He pulled up his shirt, fearing the worst. Fuckers! Unbelievable fucking fuckers! His favourite tattoo. The skull with eyes of flame that spanned five of his ribs. Ruined by a Hitler moustache and a cat-handed attempt at the outline of a Santa hat. 
<laughs> he slumped into his chair. Losing a week's takings was bad enough, but this... He carefully ran a sterile wipe over the punctured flesh, trying to work out how deep they'd needed. If he was lucky, it would slough off with his dead skin. But he had a feeling this wasn't his lucky day. Anger seethed up. There had been a time when these punks wouldn't have dared mess with him, when he could quell or start a fight with just a look, when youth and the amount of ink on display had combined to make him a scary son of a bitch. But he knew he'd mellowed over the years. But to find that he got so obviously soft as to become a victim, he gritted his teeth. He should report the theft, report the botched inking, take his punishment meekly and let the authorities dole out a few slaps on the wrist, assuming they ever identified the culprits. Well, screw that. He'd get his revenge, and it would be bloody. He'd make them pay for messing with him. First, though, there was something he had to do. He'd inked himself before, of course, every tattooist did. Usually only a small pieces in easy-to-reach areas, but he was damned if he was going to let some other artist fix what Mistletoe Girl and her friends had done. He'd be the laughing stock of the community, a community not known for its tolerance of fucked-up tattoos. They gave the industry a bad name. He rigged up the mirror so he could see his side. The hit attach was the first to go. Streaks of white gave it a more natural salt-and-pepper look, and extending it to the sides quickly removed the distinctive blocky shape. If a skull with a handlebar moustache was a little unusual, so what? <laughs> Moustaches were in, weren't they? <laughs> that and stupidly big beards on wankers, who, if they had any self-respect, would be riding Harleys, not bloody Bromptons. As for the outline of the hat, well, flames, that would work, Danny thought. Covered a multitude of sins, flames. A lot of it might, but you don't have to be too precise. Unfortunately, there was space enough to accommodate them. Christ, though, it was painful. Whether it was because he was stretching to reach or or simply because he was doing it to himself and so unable to chew it out. But shit, it got so bad, he almost reached for the dregs of the wine <laughs> before he remembered what else the bottle contained. <laughs> it was past midnight before he was done. His side stinging like a bastard and his fingers cramped with tension. He doubted he'd do anything over the holiday period except seethe and plot revenge. But even so, he was pretty happy with his work. Sure, it wasn't perfect, but it was good enough never to guess it hadn't been planned all along. Even if he'd have to grow his own facial hair to match the now bewhiskered skull. <laughs> and maybe it was time to reinvent himself anyway. He'd make other changes. He'd stop doing anything he didn't fully believe in. No more cute kittens, stupid mottos, or bloody unicorns. 
<laughs> if he couldn't convince them to get something real, he'd send them to one of the other parlours that kept springing up. Change his window display. Change his name. He'd always wanted to be a dame. And after all, what was stopping him? He'd make something good out of this festive disaster. It was only as he was unclipping the mirrors from the stand and one tilted upwards that he saw something written colourfully across his forehead. (laughs) (laughs) He muttered, reading what the mirror showed. His face crumbling in despair as he translated it the right way round. Un-fucking- Believable. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, fucking ho. (laughs) Thank you, Johnny. Our second story of the evening will be Bird in Hand by Stephanie Brown. be read by our very own Katie Darby. Stephanie has been writing a novel for a long time. Now she's rewriting it. She's had a few small things published online by the Casket of Fictional Delights and Liars Lee. She contributed to Dawn Reed's collection, Changing the Ending. She dedicates this story the late John Pepperidge. <laughs> Katie studied English at Oxford University, where she appeared in over 30 plays in Oxford, Edinburgh, and London, and won the Wally Schwartz Scholarship to the Oxford School of Drama. She has also directed several London productions, including the Time Out Critics' choice comedy, Dancing Birds. She prefers being behind the camera, but sometimes, fortunately, steps into the light. Katie. Bird in Hand by Stephanie Brown. When she emerges from the tube station, it's dark and snow is falling fast. Fat white flakes stick to her thin coat. Which way to turn? Up this black slushy road or down? Apart from the odd car, there's not a soul to be seen. She's never been north of the Euston Road before, and here she is in the icy wastes of St. John's Wood. No sounds of celebration. You never guess it was New Year's Eve. She knows 1969 will be a happy year, a thrilling year. This will be the year she falls in love. When a boy invited her to his friend's party, he used a fat, stubby pencil to write the address in her notebook. Such a pretty little book, cloth-bound, printed with the William Morris strawberry thief design, greedy, thrusting, speckle-breasted thrushes stealing luscious summer fruit. Strawberries and sunshine. Hard to remember the scent and taste of summer. The snow is definitely settling. She turns 
left and walks uphill. Could this be the road? Big double-fronted houses, steep hill, hard-to-read sign. Vanity made her leave her specs behind. But she wants to look her best, loads of mascara to show up the blue of her eyes. How lucky she was to sit next to him on the coach, on the way to her very first anti-apartheid demo. To be invited to a party by someone that funny and sexy, a face like a fool, those slanted eyes and eyelashes as curly as his hair. Her boots leak. Their soft blue suede, so trendy when she spotted them in Beaver. She never thought about London having real weather, not like Wiltshire. She'd be wearing Wellingtons if she'd stayed at home. Boxing day, walking the downs, high on the hills, looking down on the hunt, a ribbon of hounds rippling across the landscape. Daddy was cross. Said surely she didn't need to be back in London quite so soon after Christmas. But he had a leg to stand on when she said she had an essay to write. Simply had to be back at the college library. This must be it. Number 12. Steps up. Big door, fat black cast iron knocker. A goat's head. Leering expression. Street lights glinting on the horns. Old-fashioned bell button. Mittens make it hard to press. No one comes. She listens to the soft silence, stamps her numb feet on the slippery top step, descends, notices a side passage. The house is divided up. A painted arrow on the brickwork points towards the back. 12A. Slippery path, careful. She's sliding, falling. Oh, soft landing. Lucky she's wearing her maxi coat. Good old Bieber again. She rises, shaken, beats impacted snow from soft black wool with ineffectual mittens, and proceeds towards light, spilling from a window at the back of the house. Virgin snow glitters. Glass door with bell, a broken burring noise resonating distantly. Voices. A man, 50-ish, bushy grey eyebrows, jerks the door open, sticks his head out, peering round the frame. Yes? Unfriendly. Irritable. I've come to the party. Mark invited me. Whose party? I don't know. He just gave me this address. Who is it? A woman's voice from within. Some girl says she's been invited to a party. The man shouts back into the house. His head retracts, his voice lowers. Covered in snow, almost whispering, a bit odd. <laughs> the head, the eyebrows reemerge. No party here, dear. Maybe you should be trotting off home. Retrace steps, except she can't. Already they've disappeared. This time she falls against a snow-laden privet hedge. She must have mistaken the number. Try next door, but that's 14. All right then, the one before. No lights, shutters closed, attacked by Rosebush. Getting closer, no, damn it, it's 10. 
stumbling back. If only she were wearing a maxi dress instead of this frilly little chiffon number. Ease down the skirt, clench the bare and tender thighs, which flinch in the cruel chill. Maybe this is the wrong street. If she doesn't get to the party, she'll never see Mark again. London's so big. Before she came to university, she'd only ever been to Oxford Street for shopping. And the theatre at Christmas, of course. Peter Pan, Toad of Toad Hall, the Royal Shakespeare once on a school trip. The Winter's Tale. These sorts of things are so childish compared to being a Londoner. Owning an A to Z. Going to a party in North London with a bottle of Lee brown milk in your bag. She hopes no one notices that it's only three quarters full. Left over from another party, a really, really boring party, full of economic students chewing twiglets and droning on about keys. Tonight's party is going to be fabulous. Mark's friends are probably doing literature and theatre studies, Slavic languages, maybe even philosophy. It can't get sexier than that. <laughs> she pictures them dancing all around her, all velvety and glittery with furry Afghan bits around the edge. <laughs> the trouble with you, Cindy, her mother had said, is that you're always hoping. It's about time you grew up and accepted that life never lives up to our expectations. <laughs> awful to believe that. She feels sorry for poor mummy. It can't be easy being old and married with no future at all. <laughs> all Christmas, she's been imagining Mark's greeting. He'll put his arm around her shoulder like they belong together. Hi, everyone. Meet Cindy. He'll find her a glass of wine. Something sophisticated. Romantic, Italian, maybe. Bardolino. She tries out the word, syllable by syllable. Bardolino. Snowflakes stick to her teeth. It was 12 Priory Road, wasn't it? Or was it Priory Avenue? Check, quick, scrabble in the dangling embroidered shoulder bag product of Afghanistan, land of peace and love. <laughs> <laughs> no notebook, it must be there. She had it when she set out, but it isn't. Her beady-eyed thrushes have flown. Despair. Now she'll never get to the party. She might as well go home or just lie down on the pavement and wait for the snow to bury her. It can't be true. It just cannot be true that she and Mark are not destined to gyrate wildly to paint it black. That the floor won't judder beneath their prancing feet. That the needle won't jump out of the groove and have to be gently replaced by some joint-toking ethereal type. All skinny trousers, shoulder-length hair. She and Mark, lost in the dance, drinking each other up with their eyes. Bodies apart, twisting, bouncing, vibrating, but held together by that mutual gaze. 
iris to iris, a rainbow bridge. She stamps her pathetic suede-booted foot in the silencing snow. Tears well off. The endless road stretches out blank and white before her. The white album, her brother's Christmas present to her, already its music is woven into the fantasy. Towards the end of the night, dear Prudence will be playing. By then, they will be heavy-limbed with tiredness and desire. Mark will draw her towards the mistletoe, which hangs... Where? Where will the mistletoe be hanging? Not above the doorway, that's no good. People bumping into you all the time. Excuse me, sorry, mate, just need to get to the kitchen, see if there's any beer there. No. It'll be hanging from the antlers of a stag's head above the mirror in the quiet of the empty hall. Mark will embrace her. Cindy. Oh, Cindy. He'll murmur into her hair, her, her rippling hair. She's sitting on the curb, snow soaking into her coat. She's reached a point of frozen ecstasy. Wake up! This is what happens in the Arctic. No, she'll next moment the polar bears will get you. Remember your primary objective, find the notebook. How could it have got out of the bag? Wait a minute. What about the fall? Slither back towards number 12. Cling to the solid snow-capped gatepost with sodden mittens. Stop for a moment just to catch a breath. All sensation lost in feet. Think about Scott. Oats. I may do some time. Momentary mental swerve towards Scott's porridge oats. <laughs> Steaming bowl. When did she last eat? Oh, it feels like years, it seems. Now, set off along the path. Cautiously slither around the side of the house. Light from the back window has reduced to a slit. The curtains are closed. Her footsteps have again been obliterated, as if she was a memory repeatedly shut out. Jazz seeks from the house now, a distant, almost indistinguishable trumpet. How will she find her poor little book in the snow and the dark? Better remove the muffling mittens. She crouches and fumbles through a snowdrift near where she might have fallen. Under the privet is a dark and snowless space. Sound of the back door opening. It's that girl again. She's crawling round in the snow. I told you she was disturbed. And then the woman's voice. Better dial 999. Don't open the door. You can never be too careful. Not since they close the special unit. Oh, don't fuss, Hilda. Hands too cold to feel. Give up? No. Wait. Think of his eyelashes. That sleepy look. Those jutting hips. And all the time, whenever the mind rests on him, there's that fluttery feeling in the stomach's pit that must mean love. The one chance. The real thing. Oh, thank goodness. Here it is. Her hand clutches the soggy little book just as another hand grasps her shoulder. 
Now, dear, isn't it time you stopped crawling around that bush? I'm sure your friends will be worrying about you. She shakes herself free, spins round, bounds, and slithers down the path. She ricochets from privet to gatepost. Behind her, snow crashes and crumples down in cosmic avalanches. Lamplight makes a thousand tiny rainbows gleam in the frozen crystals. She's back on the road, triumphant. The blood is flowing again in her frozen feet. Didn't she always know that hope and perseverance are their own reward? She's absolutely certain to find him now. Love, that warm bird, that feathery strawberry steamer, is back within her grasp. cracker reading of the night, which will be Letter to Krampus <laughs> by Alan Gray, be read by Carrie Cohen. Carrie. Letter to Krampus by Alan Gray. From the desk of the precocious Mo Overwinkle, aged nine and four-fifths. Dear Herr Krampus, Last December, my parents told me to write a letter to St. Nicholas requesting my gift preferences. This year, however... I have been informed that my naughty behaviour means I will not be getting any treats and should instead expect a visit from the Krampus. <laughs> oh, I can't deny that this year I have acted in a fractious, disobedient and wicked manner. Indeed, tonight I find myself sent to bed early as a result of a particularly light the trip I made to the cake shop. However, my domestic exile has granted me time to consider my, dare I say, our predicament. I have come to the conclusion that we share a similar attitude towards respectability and good behaviour. We are, in our own ways, monsters. It therefore makes little sense that we are set against each other by saints and parents alike. I have therefore decided that this year I should write to you and propose that we make a deal. Rather than accept our fate, we combine our forces for the purposes of mischief. I am aware of the location of the safe where my parents store all their valuables. I suggest when you arrive to dole out the punishment prescribed by our so-called betters, I instead lead you to this location. 
You can use your black arts to unlock the safe and we split the contents 50-50. I also successfully found where St. Nicholas has hidden the presents from my annoyingly well-behaved younger brother and insistently, incessantly noisy, smell-generating baby sister. My second proposal is that we spend time sabotaging their toys and eating their sweet treats. I also have pens for the purposes of vandalising their brand new picture books. But my parents will recognise my handwriting. I hope your clawed hands are capable of adding rude words and filthy images. <laughs> Finally, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way. But I would be grateful if we could make use of your unique facial characteristics. Next door lives the prim and proper Anastasia Schoenblumer. I think she's much better than me. I have a feeling that were you to peer through her window at midnight... She might not feel so superior. In return, if there's anything you suggest I can do to take that pompous St. Nicholas down a peg or two, I would be happy to help. I hope you feel in a position to accept these terms and that our alliance may be the beginning of a long and fruitful partnership. I would be grateful... Should you possess the contact details of the bogeyman, if you would pass them on, as I believe he might be interested in my kind of proposal. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Have a wicked Christmas. No. <laughs> will be Rock Bottom by David McGrath, read by Paul Clark. David has been published in Litro, Open Pen, Weird Lies, and An Earthless Melting Pot. He's won Story Slam, came third in Words with Jam Story Competition, and was highly commended in the Manchester Fiction Prize 2013. Paul trained at the Central School and always got cast as a bad monster. Or a monster. Or for a bit of variety, a bad monster. Now a photographer, technologist, and a cage performer, he finds the League stories islands of relative sanity in his life, which is what? <laughs> oh. Rock Bottom by David McGrath. Edwin feels he is a no-hoper, a lost cause, a rock-bottom dweller, hateful, spiteful and cynical, a misanthropic, talentless wretch with no redeemable qualities, forged from the dreadful ends of the world's cruelty and pain, destitute and barren, unsung, unwept and unloved. His writing career 
has not gone as planned. By the age of 36, he should have won the book and then publicly rejected the prize on the grounds of its commercialism. <laughs> He's nowhere close. He writes his epitaph. Here lies Edwin Nicholas Shoemaker, fat failure. He makes for a pub, any pub, the grottier the better. The establishment he chooses is a hellscape of uncultured cretins, a rabble of cutthroat swine and debauched feckless harlots going about dull days on narrow horizons in a paint-peeled, carpet-stained, stale-smelling shithole. <laughs> there would be no talk of Beckett here. No discussion on Sylvia Plath. No, no comparing and contrasting Keats and Yeats. The tinsel-adorned rabble care only for double brandies and warm ale while caroling along to last Christmas by wham. <laughs> <laughs> it is perfect, and no more than he deserves. An ale, he demands of the bar wench, without a please. He spent a lifetime trying to please, and it has got him nowhere. He is a drinker now, a washed-up, never-has-been, imbibing his cursed consciousness to the bottom of a glass. However, the glass size is not satisfactory. He will never be a washed-up alcoholic by, by drinking such small libations. What is this? <laughs> Surprise to bail, love. Don't you have anything bigger than a pint? <laughs> could get you the mop bucket. <laughs> the wench gets a laugh from the rabble. Edwin is disgusted. And another, he roars after taking his first sip from the measly pint. Pace yourself, love, the wench says. I cannot. I want to pickle my liver and die unsung as soon as possible. Is that so? Just bog off, Edwin shouts at her. A table of bald, ne'er-do-well behemoths with oversized jaws ask the wench if everything is okay. I think he needs to be shown the door, the wench says. The ne'er-do-wells pick Edwin up from his stool, then use his head to bash open the emergency exit door. He receives a kick in the arse for good measure and told not to come back until he's learned some manners. He feels... Like Christopher Marlowe in his final <laughs> tavern brawl. <laughs> this new, dumbed-down, low-life world of fists and fury is exactly where he wants to reside. Perhaps he could procure a daily beating from the ne'er-do-wells until he learns to handle himself. It would be like growing up, living fast and dying young on the mean streets of Marleybone. <laughs> Here lies Edwin Nicholas Shoemaker, bare-knuckle boxer, street fighter, and all-out nutjob. <laughs> he wakes up forlorn the next morning. As it dawns on him, his asthma would not allow his dream to be realised. <laughs> Nanny! He shouts from bed. Nanny! Good morning, Edwin says Nanny, when she finally arrives with his chamomile. Uh, Nanny, I am forlorn. 
<laughs> What's the matter, Edwin? I am a no-hoper, nanny, a lost cause, a rock-bottom dweller, hateful, spiteful and cynical, a misanthropic, talentless wretch with no redeemable qualities, forged from the dreadful ends of the world's cruelty and pain, destitute and barren, unsung, unwept and unloved. I'm going to my church's Christmas Eve open house for the homeless this evening. You should come, Edwin. It would be good for you to see some real destitution. <laughs> oh, Nanny, please. You know how much I hate the poor. <laughs> Help yourself by helping others, Edwin. Nanny does not understand his pain, but she may be onto something in a roundabout way. It would be a good addition to his autobiography to recount how he helped bums. Here lies Edwin Nicholas Shoemaker, humanitarian and patron saint of hobos. The community hall is unbearable. It is a urine sea of vagabonds. They are torn, tattered and weather-beaten all sitting in long rows of makeshift tables being served tea by holier-than-thou goody-two-shoed bastards in Santa Claus hats. Last Christmas, by Quam, displaying on the sound system, and Edwin wants to die. Hi there, newbie, says Father Michael, leader of the goody-two-shoes. He's wearing reindeer antlers. Edwin... Hates him instantly. <laughs> so, you're the famous Edwin, Father Michael says, extending a hand. We've heard a lot about you. Try as he might, Edwin cannot refrain from handing him back some of his famous rapier wit. <laughs> so, what are you serving the masses this evening, Father? Apart from opiate, that is. <laughs> Edwin was delighted with himself. That was such a good one. <laughs> Here lies Edwin Nicholas Shoemaker, existential thinker and fervent dismantler of organised religion. <laughs> Someone's a fan of Nietzsche, Father Michael says, unperturbed by the slight. Nanny! Edwin beckons. Nanny! Edwin, Nanny says at his side. There's no need to shout. Nanny! This priest just touched my balls. <laughs> Excuse me, Father Michael gasps. I'm very sorry, Father Michael. I'll get him something to do in the kitchen. Come on, Edwin. Now. Edwin sticks two fingers up at Father Michael behind Nanny's back. <laughs> Nanny gets Edwin alone. Edwin, these are frail men and women that don't come from the same privilege as you carrying a lot of sadness. What do these bums know of sadness, <laughs> Nanny? Talk to one of them. Find out. Well, I'd rather they line themselves up and I give each one a lick. You really are incorrigible, Edwin. Nanny has gone too far. Nobody calls me incorrigible, Nanny. No. 
Edward marches himself up to the dirtiest, smelliest bum he can find. You there, he says. What made you decide to become a bum? <laughs> What's it, you? <laughs> I'm a writer, sir. I come with an offer of immortality. <laughs> the bum begins to recount his life story. He goes into monotonous detail of heists, bank jobs, tiger kidnappings, yarns of knocking over armoured cars with portable cranes and industrial-sized angle grinders, of graveyard scams, dirty cops, successful and unsuccessful drug dealers, of surviving in the nick of, of murder and revenge assassinations with twist endings, then of just being tired of it all, of wanting redemption, of trying to be good rather than bad. It is uninteresting ridiculousness, not worthy of being transcribed. And Edwin tells him as much. <laughs> he moves on to the next bomb. An old woman of about 50. What's your story? Edwin asks. I was a prostitute, says the woman. An alcoholic and a drug addict too. Father Michael helped me give it all up. I thank the Lord every day for putting such a great man in my path. What a tosser! Edward declares. <laughs> Who is Father Michael to tell this woman what she can and cannot do with her own body? Religion claims yet another victim, he tells the woman. Yet again, manages to indoctrinate someone into believing their life is wrong, the church's way is right. You are your own woman, free to do what pleases you, madam. Well, I'm really content now, says the woman. Wouldn't you be more content with a, with a little something-something to help you sleep at the end of a hard day on the streets? Surely there's some childhood trauma that niggles on your mind when you're all alone. <laughs> I'm not sure that's such a good idea, says the woman. I mean, sometimes I, I wish I had something to help with the arthritis. Of course you do, says Edwin. You're flesh and bone, after all. Do what makes you happy, madam. Our time on this earth is fleeting. And I do believe that we happen to be under some mistletoe. Edwin throws her his famous come-hither lip curl. <laughs> Would you like some company? The woman asks. I could provide that. I suppose. Edwin slips the woman at a fifty. And they make for the disabled toilet. <laughs> Here lies Edwin Nicholas Shoemaker, Lady Killer, <laughs> and Pimp Extraordinaire. <laughs> Afterwards, the woman runs off to procure medication to help with her arthritis. And Edwin starts to feel pretty damn good about himself. He hands out £50 notes to all of the bums on the condition that they use it to do exactly the opposite of what Father Michael tells them. <laughs> he tells them that they are Father Michael's dancing bears, his caged monkeys, whose sole purpose is to help Father Michael and his goody-two-shoot sycophants feel better about stuffing their fat faces with truffle. That's it! Fly! Fly, my pretties, fly! He shouts as he throws out the cash. 
That's enough, Edwin, Father Michael says at his side. A fifty-pound note will not solve these people's problems. Be gone, turbulent priest! <laughs> Edwin shouts. Edwin! Nanny says, but Edwin cannot hear her, for he is on a different plane of consciousness now. He is consumed with purpose. He is a juggernaut of resolve. Father Michael and the goody two-shoed bastards pick Edwin up by the arms and legs and use his head to bash open the emergency exit door. <laughs> he receives a kick in the arse for good measure and is told not to come back. <laughs> That's right! Cast out the truth-sayer! Your time will come, you bastards! Your time will come! Edwin sits down on the footpath. He feels dizzy. His noggin has taken quite the hammering in the last 24 hours. Jesus sits down beside him. <laughs> Hello, Jesus. <laughs> Edwin says... Happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks, Edwin. <laughs> Jesus says, how's it all going? Edwin tells Jesus everything. All about the drinking and the fighting, the cheap sex in the disabled toilet, the falling out with the only person who actually loves him, about abusing the church, about feeling lonely betrayed, the hatred he feels for the goody two-shoes and mankind as a whole, about how he tried to make things good but only made them worse, about feeling that the years are slipping him by faster than he can get a handle on, and about how he fucking hates Wham. <laughs> Jesus thinks on it all for a moment. Christmas, he shrugs. <laughs> Come on, let's go and score some coke. <laughs> and so, we are on the penultimate story of the night, which we whitewash by Zanthi Barker, read by Gloria Sanders. Zanthi's fiction has appeared in Open Pen, Notes from the Underground, and One Throat. She's currently studying for an MA in Comparative Literature at Goldsmiths, University of London, and working on a novel. Gloria's work includes audiobook narration for RNIB and frequent collaborations with the Cabinets of Curiosity. She's performed The Clock, her devised one-woman show with Hide and Seek Theatre at the Brighton Fringe, Pleasant Islington, and the Art Scene Festival in Ghent. She is fluent in Spanish. <laughs> Gloria! <laughs> Whitewash by Zanthi Barker. At the table, I stare into space, and the man I am supposed to marry stares at the menu. Umming and ahhing, and reading out options with a smug, happy inflection that implies he is a person worthy of the selection, and a voice that twists my stomach like the knot in the top of a bin bag. <laughs> this is the 
place is good, not upmarket, selected on the internet by my fiancé to match our incomes, appetites and willingness to take the tube. <laughs> the walls are stenciled with flowers, the tables made of raw wood, whilst the waiters wear jeans and my chiffon dress is too tight. It is Tuesday, December. Our wet shoes have marked the floor. Last week I turned 30. This dinner is his treat to me. At Hoban Station we met. He was early. And when I saw him I didn't recognise him because he'd had his hair cut short and severe. I was sure then that I loved him. But now when he says, should we go for the second red? My heart has left the building. <laughs> I have no answer because I am not thinking about the comparative palette of the Merlot over the Tempranillo grape. The slight ego trip of not buying the cheapest. I am thinking that I would like to get up and run. His beard is precise. His nails are picked. He is wearing cologne for the special occasion. When I catch his eye, he smiles warmly. His name is James Grant Bailey, and I have been sleeping with him for three years, living with him for one. He likes nice things. Long walks in the autumn, subtle foreign language films, news night, a lie-in on a Sunday. He drives an electric car and a hybrid bike. He calls his mother each week. Yes, and to top it all off, he is capital G good. His job and passion is to secure adequate housing for the disabled and the elderly. <laughs> Possibly, he is flawless. I'm thinking, the cuddled egg and smoked ham hock. Eye grinning at me over the recycled paper menu, feet square under the table in shined black brogues. I try not to bite the thumbnail. He is keen, hungry, and grinning with goodwill. He is freshly pressed shirts and clean pants, folded tea towels and bake your own bread, a whitewash every Sunday. We are an independent modern couple. He is nodding at the waiter. Yes, we're ready. Emily? Then he is nodding at me, because ladies come first. Always, every time, like clockwork. <laughs> Derek, our waiter, agrees. Like visitors at a zoo, they look at me, but all I have for them is a stutter. In the end, I change my mind three times and order something I don't like the words of. <laughs> you mean the warm curried aubergine fritters? <laughs> James encourages, so I have to repeat the ridiculous title, nudging it up like a late crap birthday present. But it is met with relief from the waiter and a fondness that is not untinged with shame from James. Wine arrives, bread, other people's tables and conversations mirroring ours. We tilt our wrists and join the tradition, young professionals, not young love. Met through friends, a clear match. We both like craft ale, Dave Eggers, black coffee. Would never consider a new life in Australia. He likes the slight rock. I'm a Floyd fan. And when we screw, it's not a catastrophe. 
So <laughs> we keep on doing it. And other things, like saying cheers. Cheers to our wise decisions, social, economic, and gastronomic. Cheers to us and our ability to commit. Now think about how you'll never fuck anyone else ever again. <laughs> he says, so tell me about last night. But it's hard to tell if it's a question or a grown man's high five. <laughs> anyway, I tell him the way he likes to hear it. I'm rolling the ridiculous. Sarah's boyfriend. My boss's silk kimono. The transparent manners and the painted eyebrows and the snide ex-partner and the bloopers. All the bloopers. Men like this love the bloopers. Those little errors to which they can relate. Like when I lost my left shoe on our third date and he had to carry me home after spending 40 minutes looking for it while my head spun and my foot froze. We'd been dancing in the local not locked park and he picked me up and swung me, causing it to fly off. We were being stupid. We were being teenage, and I felt reckless. I said, let's forget it. Let's go home. So we did. I wanted him that much. Now, tonight, after dinner, we won't take the scenic route because it is Tuesday, and the shops are open late, and there's a pair of boots he has had his eye on in the Clark's sale. And after this long together, <laughs> we don't rush home together for many reasons. He laughs at my story like that is all he needs from me. And under the table, his fingers press against my knee, and I think, maybe this is all we need. Then the food arrives. James offers me morsel tastes of his. Slid onto my plate like examinata. <laughs> Our utensils never mingle. Saliva now exchanged only in the bedroom. I try not to think about the way it was written on the menu. Later we share dessert, and it is puffed, open like smacked lips, thick clouds of cream glinting up, strawberries calling out for wandering tongues. The plate sits in the middle of the table, except then James calls Derek back. Could we get a spare plate, please? and I wish we'd stayed embedded on an ordered pizza. We fill our mouths with portioned-out tiramisu in the silence of our separate sugar rushes. Then our plates are empty. Mine slip clean with needy greed. James is still littered with a flex he would never see. I'm stuffed, he says. Derek takes our plates and spoons and brings the bill, which we split, of course. Then James, looks at, look, then James looks at his watch and he is pleased. Not nine o'clock. We'll be home in time for news night. <laughs> he helps me into my coat. Well, this was a find, he says. He hands me my umbrella. And I think of Margaret Atwood and the 70s and the woman with her fiancé and all the things she doesn't have the words for not wanting. And the time that every time she grasps and the way that every time she grasps at something that might explain it, the man stuffs something else in her mouth, like a lobster or a piece of chicken or an invitation to be grateful. <laughs> Fresh air, James announces, like it's a spell he's casting. The air is fresh. Yes, it blasts us into December and out from beneath the blanket of mid-range wine. 
he is putting on his gloves, straightening his scarf that dovetails around his neck, pushing a hair from my lip with his leather-coated finger like it is a piece of spinach caught in my teeth, and kisses my child head. <laughs> Shall we? <laughs> he says it with a sparkle in his eyes, which he has put there on purpose as a semiotic to something he does not know but has witnessed on TV, in second-hand anecdotes, in recommended novels. <clears throat> For a second, he offers up his armpit in a side-folding hug, and for that second, so abrupt, so filled with relief, I am in love again, folded against his torso, so close to the heart that I am drunk in, drunk in warmth. But he releases me. He shakes his arm free, looks up at the Christmas lights. I slip my arm through his elbow and look across to the street, where there is a man pulling the shutter down on a shop, and he is wearing just a T-shirt, but he doesn't look cold, and I want to run over and stand beside him like he is a fire for all of us. Then James says, I could do with a hot coffee. What do you think? So I have to look at him instead. We set off, walking side by side in the overlit streets and talking about the leak in the bathroom ceiling and how he wants to fix up his bicycle this weekend and buy a new lamp for the kitchen. Then his pace slows and he clears his throat with a theatrical <coughs> and keeps flicking his head around to look at me so I will start to think he is going to say something, which he is. <coughs> Emily, he says, it's been lovely tonight. Really lovely, hasn't it? <laughs> I tried to say yes, but it comes out as an eh, He nods, takes methodical steps and clears his throat a second time. <clears throat> Sorry I've been such a grump of late. <laughs> he chuckles, lightly and decidedly like that at the end of the matter, and I am nodding and mmming, and all the time still walking along, whilst my brain says, what? What does he mean? Of late? What does he mean? Such a grump. He has been exactly as he always is. Stoical. Level-headed. Emotionally mute. And then, I wonder if this is what he was apologising for. This lack the felt shape of all the things he cannot say, and that this is all he has to offer in the way of intimacy or love or vulnerability, this one chuckled out phrase, shot bought and too neat, tossed onto the high street like a guilty pound coin into the hand of a man too young and too sad to be living cold on the pavement. It is not enough, I want to tell him. It is not, nearly the beginning of enough. Then he takes my hand and gives it a squeeze, and it feels as empty as his words sounded, and my hand shrinks away whilst I hear his voice echo in the vacuum of mine not speaking. And I know, in all my drunk and treacherous flesh, and in the way that the Santa and the reindeer lights have taken on a mocking shape and seem to be glittering solely as a backlight to what is now a cruel parody, that I have been lying all along and I never loved him. He is not mine to love. It's like the lights have been switched on. James, I can't do this. He looks at me like I'm mad, and it makes me dizzy. To think that I'm saying it, that the words are rushing out. 
I say, James, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I don't want to marry you. I don't want to live with you. I don't even know you. It, I don't think you know me either. Most of the time, I don't feel like you even like me, except in the way that you might have a circus animal or a mad great auntie or a baseball hat with a slogan, stupid slogan on it. And I can't take it anymore. I can't breathe. I feel like I'm dying here. I feel like I'm just dying. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I have to go. My mouth is open and my eyes are pinned on him and I can see in his face some crumpling, some unbearable hurt that turns my stomach, gives me vertigo because it is like seeing him realise for the first time that the face has fallen out of everything and that this life that we are living has just died on its feet. And my hands are at my sides and I'm thinking about where I can go to make this easier for him, to Zara's or to a hotel or even to my mother's. But then he's not looking at me. He's looking past me, <coughs> staring straight into the window of Marks and Spencer's. He says, tea on socks, you're joking. But he is not he has wanted those socks for so long. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha. 
Krampus could hardly contain his excitement when the whispers became louder and louder until they turned into shouts, which hurt his ears and set his fangs on edge. <laughs> but somehow or other, he'd managed to control himself and keep his emotions in check. That was until tonight, Krampus night. <laughs> As the sun slipped away over the horizon, Krampus had rushed out of his cave with a deafening roar. Ah! Whipping and thrashing his chains and bells around, around and around his head with a ferocity that not even he knew he possessed. <laughs> he stomped into town, varying his fangs and brandishing his bundle of birch twigs. <laughs> At all, past. But no one had been scared. Nobody had screamed, trembled, or tried to run away. Instead, they laughed, pointed, and taken photos of him with their phones. <laughs> Sarah Feathers. 
Peter's New Year's resolution is getting into spoken word poetry. In his own words, I, you see, am a wannabe poetry MC with a plea that you agree with my guarantee that tonight's story <laughs> be both literary and well worth a fee. <laughs> I think he should keep writing short stories, frankly. But Peter can also rap badly in Spanish. Sarah trained at East 15. Theatre work includes all you ever needed, a hard day's month, 26, Mole Flanders and The Winter's Tale. Film includes Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda, Feeling Lucky and More Than Words. TV includes The Real King Herod. Sarah. I love you, Sarah. Rudolph the Red-Faced Reindeer by Peter Saul. Twas the night before Christmas and Rudolph was pissed. It always happens at the office Christmas Eve party. How else do you think he got the nickname Red Nose? Reeling on his hind legs, staggering through the gaps between the cups on top of the mulled wine table, he conducted a choir of angels, snatching periodically at their halos and missing. Every time the angels drew their divine breath, Rudolph interjected with his own lyrics. It was on a starry night. Red Rudolph had another shot! All the hills were bright. It up my Rudolph's motherfucking nose! Motherfucking nose! Motherfucking nose! At least sleeping, sleeping calm and still. Motherfucking nose! In a manger bed. Oi, dancer! Rudolph shouted as she passed beneath the clump of mistletoe, disdainfully clutching her Diet Coke in a paper cup. I'd like to take you back to my manger bed, if you know what I mean. He pursed his reindeer lips suggestively, <coughs> pointing at the mistletoe. <laughs> <laughs> it was evident by the force with which she threw her drink that Dancer did know what he meant. Rudolph slipped off the table, whacking his backside as he crashed to the floor. Rolling out of the choir of celestial hosts who'd broken his fall, he held up one of their halos triumphantly as he tottered back onto his hooves. The angels, who were coked off their faces, pitched in violently with fists and wings. Rudolph managed one final, oh, oh, motherfucking nose! Before Gabriel, using his own halo wrapped tightly around his knuckles, broke it. <laughs> After that, the company disciplinary process kicked in. It was a foggy Christmas Eve when I staggered out into the elements. I'd drawn the short straw. Missile, Trow and Wayne were all snug at home in front of a cosy fire, the lousy senior bastards. I was tired of being the junior member of their law firm. <laughs> Rudolph didn't look too pleased to see me. Wiping the snow from my hair, I extended my hand. Hello, I introduced myself. I'm from Missile, Trow and Wayne, specialist employment solicitors. My name's Smith. You're 
Just the answer. Never Dasher or Prancer or Vixen. They've all put in separate sexual harassment <laughs> claims. Not all of them. Surely not Comet and Cupid and Donham and Blitzen as well. All of them, I insisted. Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donna and Blitzen. <laughs> Shit, my client said, realising. I'm proper rotted, aren't I? And he was. Look, he said suddenly, this isn't fair, you know. It isn't? No, I'm the victim here. Actually, when I first started, all of the other radio used to laugh at me and call me names. Yeah. <laughs> like what? I asked, interested, tracing the word counterclaim in my notepad. <laughs> Legally, if Rudolph was being victimised simply for who he was, then he was in a really strong position. I imagined a brown-nosed reindeer using vicious, bullying names like Rudolph the racially different reindeer, <laughs> light bulb face, hydrant hooter, glow stick head, the mega muppet with the crimson conch, or something even worse. They called me obnoxious, Rudolph whined. Strike my last piece of legal advice. I drew a heavy line through the word counterclaim, sighing. Was there anything else, apart from laughing at you and calling you names? Yes, Rudolph shouted. They never used to let me play reindeer games either. <laughs> reindeer games, I said. Like what? Antler wrestling? No. Strip poker. I was always trying to get them to play strip poker, but they never would. Stupid dose. It ended up just being me and Lucifer, and he's never minded getting his kit off in public. I shook my head silently, looking from golden tinseled wall to golden tinseled wall of the side office that we were sitting in. I suspected that I wasn't the first person to have wanted to use it to throttle Rudolph. Mr. Rudolph, to be frank, I think you should just resign. Based on the evidence, there is no hope of you winning your case. And your personality doesn't exactly help you either. But it's Christmas, he objected. There's always hope. Always chance for a miracle. Just you wait. So, we waited. Sure enough, one hour later, Rudolph was fired. I didn't recommend him to lodge an appeal. Most of the building turned out to watch as Rudolph and Gabriel were escorted from the igloo offices by polar bear security. They left with bad grace. That's Gabriel, Gabriel's harpy girlfriend, now ex, <laughs> shouting vitriolic abuse after them. You'll never manage without me, Rudolph snarled back at the crowd as he left. No other creature is qualified to do my job. Not at such short notice. There'll be no presents delivered this year. Just crying children in front of hearts, you stupid bastards. <laughs> Which, strictly speaking, wasn't true. 
way in, headed by Pegasus, and he's the bunny on a broomstick. <laughs> <laughs> we must have travelled fast. Anyway, it was still a foggy Christmas Eve as I slowly followed Rudolph out into the cold. Miss Ultra and Wayne would still be snug in front of their cosy fires, and I thought longingly of my own. Outside in the snow, I passed Dancer and the other reindeer standing around the sleigh. It was shiny and filled with presents. The bumper sticker on the back read, Fat people are natural airbags. I don't mind if you drive too close. <laughs> you look cold, Dancer said when she saw me shivering. Would you like some hot mulled wine? I nodded eager gratitude as she handed me a thermos flask. Unscrewing it clumsily through mittens, I dragged the warmth of the spirit down my throat and into my veins. It danced there a while, and I gasped with the shock of the heat, and then again as the gasp crystallised in front of my eyes. I took another swig. It was cold, but Christmas was in the air. We stood there feeling the magic of goodwill spreading its way across the world's darkened skies. Tomorrow is Christmas Day. On Christmas Day, in Belgium and France, soldiers throw down their weapons in order to play football. On Christmas Day, Syrian Christians huddle close for the warmth of family in squalid refugee camps, singing carols and believing that there really is a future. On Christmas Day across the globe, sheepish sons and daughters who haven't called home for a year are welcomed back with open arms. Drunks exchange greetings with those wandering back from midnight mass. Eyes of rich and poor meet. The lonely receive smiles from strangers. And through a thousand different tiny acts of warmth, those with nothing find just enough hope to keep them going for one more year, to believe, even to rebuild. Amidst the laughter and nonsense of the season, there is poignancy, and there is hope, and there is humanity, regardless of race or even religion. There's a sense of people coming together, a sense of individual and collective worth, of life and of goodwill, and of Christmas. Merry Christmas, Dancer said sincerely. Merry Christmas, I replied, and meant it. We stood there pensively for a little until the moment passed, watching as the elves tried to fit the sleigh harness over the Loch Ness monster, <laughs> a headlamp wrapped around his forehead. Every time that they over-tightened a strap, he wheeled around furiously and set them scurrying for cover. Dancer, do you worry that he won't be able to work as a team? Nah, she replied. Scotty's not as independent-minded as he likes to think. We'll do all right together. I asked what she thought Rudolph would do now that he'd been fired. I couldn't see him finding something else so easily, or a company that was tolerant. Oh, he'll be fine too. They'll reduce it to 12 months suspension and an equality awareness course when they return tonight. He'll be back next year as glowy and as obnoxious as ever. You think so? No, so. 
There is some not the tribunal. It is Christmas after all. Goodwill is an important tradition. I suppose so, I agreed. And we watched in friendly silence as the elves finally managed to harness Scotty. Merry Christmas! We turned. Merry Christmas, Nick! We called back as he approached, clad in the full company red. And what would you like this year, young lady? He asked me. Um, a partnership? I tried, hopefully. Mr. Tro, Wayne and Smith, specialist employment solicitors. It has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? I'll tell you what, I'll see what I can do. Thanks, Nick. My pleasure, always. <coughs> and now, he checked his watch. And now it's time. Now, Dasher and Dancer. Now, Prancer and Vixen. On Comet, on Cupid, on Donna and Blitzen. And Scotty the Loch Ness Monster, too. <laughs> we have presents to deliver. The reindeer ran to the sleigh, strapping themselves in with expert swiftness. And then. And then they rose to the air with oh such a clatter. Both ran from their igloos to see what's the matter. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight. Happy Christmas to all! And to all a good night! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mr. McGrath, for staying uh, silent during most of the reading. Uh, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is that. We'll be sticking around for a while, though, as it doesn't pay to venture onto Oxford Street at this time of year, sober. So do come by and say hello. We'll be stood under the mistletoe, obviously. And please go wild for our actors, for our authors, and for everyone who has been part of the league this year. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year!